God. And Lord, I pray that we would be ones that we know that you desire to use us in these days that we are in. And so, Lord, may our hearts be stirred tonight as we look at this scene, this, this uh, scene that unfolds before the throne, knowing that you give us a hope that comes through Jesus Christ and what he did for us on the cross. So, Lord, help us be attentive. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. And so as we move into chapter 5, of course, uh, we're in this section of the book of Revelation that is all future, chapter 4 to the end of the book. As that outline is given to us in chapter 1, verse 19, John, uh, write the things which, you know, you have seen, chapter 1, write the things that are chapters 2 and 3, the church age. And then thirdly, write the things that will take place after this, that is that Greek word metatata. And so chapter 4 began with after these things, after what things, after the church age. And we know that as we looked at that, that John, he is uh, in the spirit and he is, is in uh, this heavenly scene here. And as he is there, he beholds a throne set in heaven and one who sat on the throne. So last time we saw that the, the veil was opened up to see the real holy of holies, that is the throne room of God. And John gives us a glimpse at the throne room and the beauty of that place. And indeed, we, we see that description of the throne, especially as we focus on the one who's on the throne. Uh, it's heartwarming indeed, um, the one who sat on the throne, and that is, of course, the Lord. And that is so comforting for us as it was for them. Because as John would bring this book back to the Christians who were experiencing heavy persecution by the hands of Domitian, they needed to know that God was still on the throne, that Christ was on the throne, and that he's coming back. And you and I, we need to know that as well in the day in which we're living in, that the Lord's on the throne, and he's there, and heaven is real, eternity is real. I had somebody ask me yesterday, should we care about the law? Should we care about people who are not saved? And, and the answer is yes, we should care about them. And I hope for you individually and for us as a church that we have a heart for the loss because eternity is real, heaven is real, and you and I who name the name of Jesus Christ, we are going to be in this heavenly scene as we continue through chapter 5. We're going to be all together and we have a wonderful future. And it brings me great comfort to know that God is still on the throne. And that Christ is going to come back. And he's going to establish his kingdom. And he's going to set everything right. And we're going to be standing before the throne. And we will be singing this new song that is given to us here in chapter 5. So you and I, we have a wonderful future. But I also know that there is going to be a time where others will stand before God. You see, everybody will stand before God. And you and I as believers, we will stand before him in this heavenly scene. But unbelievers, when we get to Revelation chapter 20, will stand before him at what is called the great white throne judgment and they will be judged for their works for the rejection for of jesus christ and they will be cast in the outer darkness eternity is real eternity is real and sometimes in the church we don't like to talk about that but jesus talked a whole lot about you know hell and how hell is real he talked about heaven and we need to understand this, that life is but a vapor. And we have opportunity to share the good news with others, to give them a living hope, to give them the hope of heaven and how they can join us to be a part of the kingdom of God. So this indeed brings me comfort as we look at the one who sat on the throne, knowing that, Lord, you're in control, that you are the one that still is on the throne. And as we saw that description, he was like a jasper and sardis stone. Not that he is a jasper or sardis stone, but speaking of and pointing to Jesus Christ. And then as we looked at the one on the throne, uh, we saw that the things that were proceeding from the throne, that was lightnings and thunders. And then the 24 elders and the four living creatures we saw that were around the throne as they worshiped the one who sat on the throne. It's really a glorious scene that we looked at. And as we continue looking at this heavenly scene, all of a sudden, now we're going to see this drama. 
We're going to see this scene unfold before the throne here in chapter 5. So let's pick it up as we do read in verse 1 of Revelation chapter 5. And I saw in the right hand of him who sat on the throne a scroll written inside and on the back sealed with seven seals. And as we look at that, John giving us this heavenly scene now begins to tell us about this scene that is about to unfold here in chapter 5. And he says that the one that sits on the throne in his right hand is a scroll and it might be translated maybe in some of your translations a book but it's a scroll because we know that in Bible days they didn't have books like what we have your, your Bible your is a book or books that we have uh, they didn't have that but rather they had scrolls and ancient scrolls were parchment or papyrus both were very expensive and papyrus was made from the reeds uh, that would grow near the mouth of the Nile River the reeds were flattened and placed uh, horizontally and vertically and they were soaked in salt water and then pounded flat and the scroll was would be connected horizontally and they would be rolled and a lot of times put on a wooden handle. The sheets of papyrus connected together and then the scroll would be unrolled. So if you had the book of Jude, that little epistle before the book of Revelation or 2nd and 3rd John, 3rd John I believe is only 14 verses, or the book of Philemon, those were usually small books or they were uh, small scrolls, one single piece of papyrus. But if you got to the book of Revelation, it would be on a scroll as you have 22 chapters that would be about 15 feet long. Matter of fact, when they found the Dead Sea Scrolls, they found a whole scroll of the book of Isaiah that we went through, 66 chapters. And you might recall that it was a few years ago. There's only, there's the original scroll of the book of Isaiah that is from the Dead Sea Scrolls. They got it in the Jerusalem Museum down in the basement. And they have to preserve it because if they take it out, uh, it can start to turn black. So it's under very strict conditions. And so they've made copies of it. And there's only a few copies that are in the world, one in the British Museum, I believe, one in the Jerusalem Museum. And then there was one that would travel around. And we actually had it here. And we had the whole scroll of Isaiah that went from almost one end of the room to the other end of the room. And it was fascinating to see that. And you could come and you could, they had a program where you had your iPad and you can line it up on that scroll and then it would translate it into English. And what it had on that scroll dated 200 years before Christ came on the scene is what's in your Bible. Absolutely amazing. So that was a single scroll preserved, dated 200 years before Christ came on the scene. But the scroll was written on one side, usually only, and you had the smooth side, and then you had the rougher side. But this scroll that John sees here, notice that it was written on the inside and on the back side, and it had seven seals. So first one, we see that the scroll being presented... And then we're going to see in verses 2 through 4, we see that uh, this scene unfolds. And, and, and then in verses 5 through 7, the problem is solved. And this scroll, verse 1, having seven seals, meaning that it was rolled up basically into seven different sections. You see, whenever scribes would write on a section, they would stop. They would roll it up, and then they would seal it, perhaps on the edges with a, a wax seal. And they would seal that section. They would put it down. They would come back. They would write, and then seal the second section. And then they would put it down, and they would continue. And that made sure that whoever was reading the scroll would read it in predetermined sections. So you would break that first seal, and you would roll it out, and you would read it until you got to the next section, and then you would break the second seal, and furthermore, and only the person with the right authority could break open the seals and read what was on the scroll. Now the question arises, what is this scroll that's being seen that's in the right hand of the one who sits on the throne? And there's different suggestions that are made. 
One is suggestion is that this scroll is God's claim of divorce against Israel. I don't hold to that view. Uh, there really is no scriptural evidence for that. Matter of fact, we see in scripture, and we went over it not long ago in Romans chapter 11, that God's not through with Israel. That as we go through chapter 6 through 18, which is going to describe that seven-year period called the tribulation period, that we're going to see that Israel is going to be a focus in that seven-year period. We're going to see the 144,000 Jews sealed by God. The temple that's mentioned, we're going to see that the Antichrist is going to desecrate the temple in Jerusalem. We're also going to see that the Jews are going to have to flee to the rock city of Petra. So Israel is the epicenter of end-time prophecy, and we know that God's not through with them, that we know that the time will come, as Paul would write in Romans chapter 11, that all of Israel will be saved when they recognize that Jesus was truly their Mashiach, their Messiah. So I don't think it's, it's God's claim of divorce against Israel. Some have said that this is simply God's sentence against the enemies of the church. That's what some have suggested. Others say that this scroll is simply God's will, and the scroll open and read, then history is being consummated. The idea here is that God has a book in which the history of the universe is already written. Remember, Isaiah says that he knows the end from the beginning. And the history of the world uh, told in advance. And he initiates the consummation of all of history. And, and only God can hold this scroll. This is perhaps the final settlement of the affairs of the universe. And this is based on the idea of customarily, under Roman law, uh, wills were sealed with seven seals. And a couple emperors, their wills were found. Augustus. You recognize his name, Luke chapter 2, that it came to pass in those days that a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered at the time of the birth of Jesus. So they found his will that was sealed with seven seals. And then Vespasian, and Vespasian ruled. He's the one that gave the command for his son Titus to surround Jerusalem in 70 AD and to attack the city and destroy the city. And his son Titus ended up becoming the emperor uh, after he died. And then his other son, Domitian, is the one that is ruling during this time that is bringing heavy persecution against the Christians. So they found their, their wills and they had uh, seven seals and, and they left for their successors. And they were sealed seven times. And so Bible commentators suggest that this seven sealed book, therefore, is the comprehensive program of God culminating in the second coming of Jesus Christ. Or it could be, and I find this very intriguing, that it could be, and it's really a wonderful, powerful picture for you and for me, that many Bible commentators believe that this seven-seal scroll is the title deed of the earth. You see, a Jewish uh, believer reading this would immediately begin to think about how Jewish title deeds to land were sealed. Now, normally, a title deed to land would be written on one side, the smooth side. And it would be sealed with a single seal. In Jeremiah chapter 32, it talks about Jeremiah purchasing a piece of property. And it was written on a scroll and sealed with a seal. We see that biblical example in Jeremiah chapter 32, verse 10, that Jeremiah writes, And I signed the deed and I sealed it. And it became a legal document. But here's the key. That as you would buy a property then all of a sudden, or you had a property, your finances go bad. You're broke, you're bankrupt, you can't make the payments on the property, you have some debt, maybe you end up being a widow, and they didn't have a lot of support in those days, especially if they didn't have any sons to take care of them. And it would cause you, perhaps, to give up the property. And then what would happen is, is they would take that title deed to that property. The title deed was taken from you. But Jewish law was very careful about making sure that people didn't lose their property easily. Because inheritance was very important in ancient Israel. So on the back side of that scroll, on the outside of the scroll, would be written the debt that you owed and the requirement. And it would be sealed with seven seals. 
And it would then be available for you, the previous owner of the property, for you to go before the officials, the elders, and and to say that I can make the payments, I can meet the requirements to get your property back. And you had up to seven years to do that. You had the opportunity to get that property back, to say, hey, I can buy that property back. I can redeem the property. And if you could not meet the requirement for redemption, then your next of kin would have the option of redeeming the property so that it was kept in the family. Again, that was real important in ancient Israel. That relative that redeemed the property was known as, as many of you know, as the kinsman redeemer. Now, I'm not trying to bore you with a lot of Jewish, you know, land uh, laws that were in the Old Testament and traditions and all of this. But I think it explains to us perhaps what we see, what I believe is in the hand of the one that sits on the throne here in chapter five. It is very well, Bible teachers say, could be the title deed to the planet Earth. You see, originally the Earth belonged to God by creation. The earth is the Lord's and and all its fullness and all who dwell therein. And when God created Adam, he gave dominion of the earth to man. And he said to Adam, have dominion over the fish of the sea, the fowls of the air, every moving and living, creeping thing, for I have given it to you. It's yours. So God gave the earth to man. But what happened? Man forfeited it. He gave it back over to Satan, his right to ownership, if you would. That man all of a sudden went into spiritual bankruptcy. When Adam ate of that tree that God said not to. We know that Romans chapter 5, you recall, that we just got through studying, tells us that because Adam's sin, sin and death has now come to every single one of us into the world. But because the last Adam, Jesus Christ, now he brings life to us. But man turned over the title deed to the earth, if you would, over to Satan. Now that's why Paul says that Satan is called the God, little g, of this world, 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 4, I believe, who has blinded the eyes of the people. In the Gospels, there's a couple times where Jesus calls Satan the prince of this world. In Matthew chapter 4, you remember that in the wilderness temptation of Jesus, that Satan took Jesus up on a high mountain. He showed him all the kingdoms of the world. And Satan told Jesus, bow down to me, and all of this will be yours. Now, Jesus did not dispute that it was Satan's to give. I mean, that's a pretty big boast, wouldn't you say? He says to Jesus, the whole world is mine, and I'll give it to you if you bow down to me. And Jesus did not dispute that claim. Now, if I was to take you up on Long's Peak... And to take you up and say, look at all this, all the front range, you know, all of Colorado, up into Wyoming. It's all yours if you bow down and worship me. You would say you're insane because, you know, it's not mine to give. We know that Jesus would say that you shall worship the Lord thy God and only him shall you serve. So Jesus came to redeem us back to himself. The world is in rebellion against God. Satan is indeed the God of this world. And when you and I became a Christian, what are we told? That we are aliens to this world, that we belong to another kingdom, that we're in the world, but we're not of the world. And Jesus says to you and to me, if you were of the world, the world would love you because, because the world loves its own, but you're not of the world. You see, Jesus, he is our kinsman redeemer. And just as we see in that wonderful story in the Old Testament of of Ruth, and we don't have time to go into it, but we know that Boaz was the kinsman redeemer in the book of Ruth. As he took Ruth as his wife, we too are redeemed and we become the bride of Christ. So I think it's a wonderful picture given to us in this book of the fact that Jesus, the one who is our kinsman redeemer, taking a bride, you and me, that is us, So I believe that this very well could be the title deed to the earth, the bankruptcy conditions written on the back of the scroll. 
But let's continue as we see that this, this scene is going to unfold. And then I saw a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice, who is worthy to open the scroll and to loose its seals? And verse 3, and no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look at it. So I wept much. This is John writing this because no one was found worthy to open and to read the scroll and to look at it. So here the stage is set. This, this drama is unfolding as an angel is saying, who is worthy to open the scroll and to look at it? In other words, who can redeem the world to keep possession? Notice the angel asks, who is able? Who is worthy? Not who is willing. There's a big difference. And no one was found in heaven or on earth or under the earth was worthy to open the scroll and to look at it. In other words, no angelic creature or human was worthy to redeem the earth, to open its scrolls. And when John realizes that, he begins to weep bitterly. He wept much, which means that John broke down and he's sobbing here. If indeed this is the title deed to the earth, the reason that John is weeping here is because if nobody is worthy or able to redeem the world, it, it, then it stays in Satan's domain. He remains the God of this world, the prince of this age. One of the most difficult questions that I get asked as a pastor, and I get asked all the time, why is there evil in the world? And all you have to do is be in this world for one day to know that, that there is evil and there is darkness. To live for two days, <laughs> to live for weeks and months and years like we have to see that it's getting worse. And people like to blame God. But we need to understand that sin and death and disease has entered the world when Satan took possession. He's a liar, he's a murderer, he's a deceiver. And he is the one that is the prince of the power of the air. And when sin entered the world, we live in a fallen creation. We have earthquakes, we have tornadoes, we have floods, we have hurricanes. There's disease, and there is sadness, and there is death. And I don't understand it all. But I know that we live in a fallen creation. And I know that Jesus said it, it rains on the just and the unjust. And I know that as Christians, everything filters through his loving hands. But I do know this, that he is going to come back and set everything right. And that I belong to him and I can trust in him. And when somebody asks me, why is there evil? Why is there loss and difficulties? I always go back to the cross and remember that Jesus didn't leave us in a hopeless state. He could have just said, you guys are on your own. You live in a sinful world and left it in the domain of Satan. But he came to die for you and for me. So always take him to the cross where there is hope. And I don't know, I don't understand it all. The, the things that happen in the spirit world, I know, I know that it's interesting that uh, I was reading the other day when Jesus was in the boat with his disciples, remember? And, and all of a sudden a storm came up. And these guys were seasoned fishermen. They grew up on this lake, the Sea of Galilee. And this storm was so terrible that they were frightened. They were terrified. And they woke Jesus up. And they said, don't you care? They were going to perish. And Jesus, of course, he would wake up, he would stand up, and he would say, be muzzled. And what is interesting about that phrase is that he would use that same phrase when he was freeing the demoniacs, when he was casting demons out of people. So some have suggested that perhaps Satan stirred up this storm at the Sea of Galilee, and think about it, God's whole program is in that boat, Jesus and the 12 apostles. And if he could drown them, then everything is cool. And he said, be muzzled, be still, and immediately it was calm. And I know that we can call out to the Lord, and there are times where we feel like, Lord, are you there? Are you with me? And to understand that he is with us. I don't understand it all, but I do know this, that we live in a fallen world. 
And I know much of mankind has joined in with Satan's rebellion, and we see that more and more. As we look at those who are living after the flesh versus those who are living in the spirit, living and pursuing righteousness, we know that those living after the flesh far outnumber those living after righteousness. And we see it in our own nation. Living after righteousness, living after the spirit is not a popular life. It is not admired by the world. And it's not applauded by the world. And if you live after the Lord, you are going to be made fun of in this world and you're going to be laughed at and you are going to face some sort of persecution because Paul would say that in the last days that it's going to be perilous, perilous times and those who live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. There are some parts of the world we see that there's an increase right now with the persecution of Christians in Nigeria, they're killing Christians by the hundreds. In the Far East, in the Middle East, it continues. And I wouldn't be surprised if we see it increase in our own nation. This rebellion against God. This getting further away from the Lord. Satan is masterminding it. causes havoc in this world. And he is messing up the lives and the hearts in the heads of a whole lot of people. And John is weeping. And I weep when I hear of another shooting that our young people, what they're going through at this time down in Highlands Hills, Highland Park, at this school, what they saw and these kids and the families. I weep when I see how our young people are dying because of taking drugs and how suicide is increasing rapidly with our young people. I think about how difficult it is for them, how hard it is, and how our nation is getting further away from the Lord. We need to pray for our country. We need to pray for our state and for our community. We know that. We live in a post-Christian era. We now live in a nation that doesn't want God in our business, in our lives. We don't want him in our schools, in our courts. We don't want him in our science. We don't want him in our morals. We don't want him in our government. We don't want the nativity scenes in the parks or at the civil buildings. We don't want to have prayer at the football game any longer or at graduations. No mention of the Ten Commandments. We are telling God more and more, we don't want you. We don't want you mentioned. And we are now living in more of a godless nation. And we are seeing the results of it. The drug use that is killing so many people. The pornography that is so rampant. The violence. As Paul would say that in the last days it will be perilous times. And that word perilous he borrows from Matthew chapter 8. When he, it, it is Matthew that describes, uses the same Greek word in describing the demoniacs. That were they're out of control and violent. And Paul says that's going to mark our society in the last days. Immorality is abounding. We live like we're in the days of the judges. And the theme of the book of Judges in the Old Testament is they did what was right in their own eyes. And we see from Judges what took place then is happening right before us. There was truth that was compromised. The generation after Joshua forgot the Lord and the works of the Lord, we are told. And it led to moral corruption. It led to civil catastrophe. Read the book of Judges. The young adults went through it. They just finished up. And it goes from bad to worse. We have forsaken truth as a nation for the most part. It has led to moral corruption. We glorify and we celebrate immorality.
And it's leading to civil, you know, catastrophe is what it's doing. We are more divided as a nation than ever before. We're more concerned about saving whales than a baby in a woman's womb. Since 1973, over 60 million unborn babies put to death. You can take the Vietnam Memorial in Washington, D.C., the names of those men and women who died, 54,000 names, 500 feet long. You write the names of those babies aboard it since 1973, same size on the same wall, that wall would be over 80 miles long. That is 30 times the casualties in all the wars we have fought from the Revolutionary War up to the present. 30 times the casualties in one-fifth of the time. One of every five pregnancies in America in an abortion. The most dangerous place in America is in the mother's womb. And now we're talking about infanticide? That if a baby is aborted and it survives, that we can kill that baby? And I think, have we lost our soul, our nation? And we weep, don't we? And I'm so thankful that there is forgiveness. And you got to understand that I'm conflicted in this. Because I love our nation. I love our country, and I believe that there's still decency in our nation, that there's still hope, that God is still here and he wants to save, that there are those who still value life. And I see that at time. I've seen it in my ministry. I remember at 9-11 when we were down at ground zero, and it was such a horrible time, and, and it, it, they were recovering you know, those lost, over 350 firefighters, nearly 200 law enforcement, and there was memorial service going on four or five a day in New York, and, and law enforcement and firefighters coming in from all over the country. And I remember being down at Ground Zero, and when you heard the whistle blow, everybody would stop what they were doing, and we would line the road, and the ambulance would back up, and we'd be at attention. And if they found just a little part, a finger, anything, and, and they would put it in the ambulance, and take it to the morgue. There was such a respect for life. And I think, are we losing that? That I remember when one of the deputies got killed, that there was an honor guard when they brought his body to the funeral home that was on watch, the honor guard, 24-7, until we took him to Lynn Grove and we laid him to rest. The same thing happened with the firefighter in Greeley. But I think, are we devaluing life? And we see what's going on, and it concerns us, doesn't it? And God, help us. God, forgive us. We are now helping people in their lives. We are ones that life is no longer sacred like it was before. One Christian leader said that once we become neutralized, then we become secularized and then demonized. We need God's help. You know, I was spending some time with some family. It was interesting. I was talking to Sue about it, that it seems like that the generation, my parents and, and that generation, that most of people went to church. And, and then our generation, some people went to church and then our children, the young people, are going to church less and less. So I was looking at some statistics. In the 50s, 80% of people went to church regularly in America. 80%. And that's when churches were teaching the gospel. Today it's 20%. People are saying, we don't need it. And that doesn't include 20% churches that are no longer teaching the word of God. The church is more forsaken the word of God, more and more. 
We know that evolution thinking has saturated the church, the psychologizing of the faith, putting man's ways over God's ways, losing the belief in the sufficiency of the word of God. We're accepting immoral lifestyles more and more. And the church is full of tell me how wonderful I am so I feel good. Listen, you are wonderful to God. And that's why he came to redeem the world. And Jesus would tell parable in Matthew chapter 13 that the kingdom of God is like a man who found a treasure in the field and he gave all that he had to buy the field so he can take the treasure out. And I've heard so many interpretations on that that, you know, we're the ones that gave up everything and, you know, to take the treasure, Jesus is our treasure. That's not what it means. You see, Jesus in those kingdom parables, he would explain that the field is the world. Who's the one that gave up everything to buy the world, to redeem the world? We're seeing this picture. It was Jesus. And he redeemed the world not just to have another planet. He redeemed the world so he can have you. You the treasure. To take you out of this world. To be with him. He loves you. And I pray that this would stir our hearts because if there's sin in our life, we need to repent. More and more people are being told it's okay to live in a homosexual lifestyle and for couples to live together without being married. And we don't want to address sin in the church. And more and more, we are declaring in the church that Jesus is not the way, that there's other ways to heaven. And understand you were created and I was created to worship him, to walk with him, to know him for such a time as this, to be light and truth as this world unravels. And you can give the only hope that there is. And that is Jesus Christ who died for you and loves you and is coming back. And to tell people this world is not your hope. This world is not your hope. And we need to pray for our young people. And it's a battle out there. But we continue as we read that John, as he wept much, because no one was found worthy in verse 4 to open and read the scroll or to look at it. But one of the elders said to me, Do not weep. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has prevailed to open the scroll and to loose its seven seals. So we're presented with this, this scene now, and now the solution is given. John says to one of the elders, Don't weep. The lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David has prevailed to open the scroll. John, don't despair. Don't lose hope. Look over there. There he is. And of course, it's a reference to Jesus. The root of David, you might remember that was the title of Messiah in Isaiah in chapter 11. And also we'll see it at the end of the book of Revelation. And of course, the line of the tribe of Judah, you can make reference to Genesis chapter 49, verse 10. Judah means praise. Judah is the lion's whelp. Jacob called his 12 sons together. He prophesied over them. And I'll, I'll read it to you. When you read Ger, uh, Genesis 49.10, it says that the scepter, and the scepter was a symbol of kingship, of royalty, shall not depart from Judah, nor a lawgiver from between his feet until Shiloh comes. In other words, Judah, you are the tribe in which Messiah is going to come. The scepter shall not depart. The monarch will remain with you, Judah, until Messiah comes, Shiloh comes. You know, I was doing a little reading on this this afternoon. It was interesting. In 6 AD, when Rome was ruling over Israel, they officially took away the Jews' right for capital punishment. They officially did that. Now, there's all kinds of papers written on it. If you ever want bedtime reading, you can read on it. And, and, you know, was it really that way? Did the religious leaders, did the Romans kind of, and we know they kind of would turn the other way in religious manners because they were ones that we saw that Stephen was stoned. They were about ready to stone the woman that was caught in a very act of adultery. But officially, they took away the right for the Jews to execute capital punishment. That's why they took Jesus, who they feared the people, over to Rome. They condemned Jesus to death, the religious leaders, but they could not put him to death. So they took him over to Pilate and said, you need to deal with this man. You need to put him to death. It's interesting that it's written that when 
Rome came along and said, you guys can no longer execute officially capital punishment, that the rabbis, the religious leaders, went throughout the streets of Jerusalem and they wailed and they wept and they threw dust in the air and they thought, oh no, this is what has happened. The scepter has departed. Uh, and they always thought that to execute capital punishment was their you know, sovereign right and we've lost that. We've lost that all of a sudden. And they were thinking back to, to that prophecy of, of Genesis chapter 49, verse 10. The scepter has departed and Shiloh has not come. And the prophecy hasn't come. And they wept and they wailed and they threw dust in the air. I find that stuff kind of interesting. And I want to end with this. Because what we talk about tonight and where our nation is headed and what we see in these last days. And I suggest to you that perhaps we wail and we mourn and we throw dirt in the air and we say, Lord, where are you? In 6 AD, here they are wailing and weeping, throwing dust in the air and up in the carpenter shop in Nazareth with Shiloh. At the age of 12, he's in the temple in Jerusalem. And he is teaching there, the religious leaders. They were amazed. He was right there in their midst. At a time when we go through difficulties or hardships and we see what happens and the condition of our nation and all this stuff, we can wail and we can weep. But I want you to know something. He's right here. And he's in this sanctuary, in this temple. And he's in your heart. And he's still on the throne. That's what we're reading here. And that gives me hope. And I hope it gives you that same comfort and hope as well. God's still working. And I think about it's not lost with our young people. I hear about a young man who put his life on the line to save his classmates. I know that young people are getting saved. I think about the young people here. You know, when the high school did the, the worship night, I was so proud of them. And, and I was just like so warmed. I thought, this is so wonderful. We want to encourage them. When I think about the young adults, you guys going to, to Peru and serving in other ways and the high school youth that are going to help with VBS and in other ways, it gives me hope that, yes, that God still has his remnant of people. He's still working. And we need to be praying. And God still wants to use us. And he is here. And he's telling us we are rushing towards this heavenly scene. But there's still things for us to do on this side of eternity to give light to people who are in darkness and to know that we are to stand on the truth of his word. Listen, don't back away. This is a battleground. Keep fighting the good fight. Shall we do that? Let's do that. Because it's going to get more difficult, perhaps. And I pray for a revival in our nation. I pray that there's a great awakening. I pray that there's another Jesus movement and we can be a part of that. But I don't know what's going to happen. But I do know this, that God is still working. He wants to save and he wants to use us to be light. And please, especially you young people, don't get caught up in the world. Because the world is not your hope. And the world will leave you empty and discouraged and defeated and depressed. Live for Christ. And you are here, all of us are here for such a time as this, in a day in which we're living. We are living in amazing times. This is an amazing time for the church, but it is also very perilous times. And we are told some of the last words of Paul, he said, Timothy, listen, that there are going to be some, many that are going to depart from the faith, given over to itchy ears, heaping up teachers for themselves, given to the myths and fables. And we're seeing that today. But listen, you know the truth. So you keep coming. You keep learning. 
You make the priority the Lord in every area of your life. That's for all of us. It's for me as well. Let's not get complacent. Let's not get sluggish. Let's not go to sleep spiritually. The Lord is coming back. And he's on the throne right now. But he's coming back, amen? And he's coming back because he has redeemed us. We are his bride. And the days are getting short. And Satan knows that his time is short. So he's working overtime. And we get to be able to storm the darkness in the lives of people and to give them light and truth and the love of Jesus Christ. As we know that as we do this VBS, as I said, we can give these kids two things the world won't give, that is love and truth, and that's for everyone who walks through here. Somebody emailed me the other day. They wanted to say thank you, Calvary Chapel, because when I came here, I heard truth, and I gave my life to Jesus, and I was loved, and I was welcomed, and I just want to thank you. We have opportunity to touch lives, lives for eternity. So, Father, we thank you. We thank you so much. For this heavenly scene, we'll continue with it, and we're going to see that the one who had been slain is going to take the scroll out of the hand of one who sits on the throne, the Father, and he is worthy to redeem the world. And that song that we will sing, that you redeemed us to God by your blood, and we shall reign on the earth with him when you come back to establish the kingdom. But in the meantime, Lord, we see what's going on around us and in our nation, and it does break our hearts. We weep. So, Lord, we pray for our nation that we know that the hope for this nation is not political. I'm not saying it's not important, but it's not our hope. It is you, Lord, in a turning back to you. We weep when we see the condition of the church. When I read a large article in the paper of a so-called pastor, reverend, who denies the cross and the truth of your word that is written to go to thousands of people, and it concerns me. We weep when we see that, but Lord, you're still working. And I pray for us that we would be a light to those who are linked to us in our lives that we wouldn't go to sleep spiritually, that we wouldn't play games with our Christianity, that we would know that Satan is working overtime, and he's working overtime with us, and he hates us, and he's a destroyer and a liar and a murderer. He's destroying people's lives, marriages. He's even destroying churches as he can get a foothold into them. And Lord, I pray that you would just be with us and guide us and strengthen us. I pray that you strengthen marriages here, families that are here, that fathers would take the lead as they're called mothers, would nurture their children in the ways of the Lord. As we're going to remember Mother's Day and celebrate it, the ministry of moms. Lord, that we would be a blessing to others, that our young people would know that you are their future and hope, not this world. And Lord, that you would strengthen them because we know that the days are perilous. That we would encourage them and back them. And Lord, that as a church, that we would stand together in the love of Jesus Christ and not be distracted by things that have no heavenly value or we turn inwardly or Lord we get sloppy and lethargic and sluggish complacent Lord God forbid not in these days that we would keep fighting the good fight and be a light a city on a hill and that we would be a hospital for people who are hurting. And Lord, that we would reach this community, this state, as much as we can with the gospel. 
and that we would love others, love them enough to give them truth, and tell them that heaven is real and there is one on the throne that sent his son to die for them. And so, Lord, I want to pray if there's anybody that's here tonight that you've never made a commitment to Jesus Christ. Maybe you think you're religious. Maybe you've gone to Bible study. Maybe you've gone to church. But have you truly made a commitment to Christ? Paul would say, examine yourself to see if you're in the faith. If you've never done that, will you make a decision? Because he is your salvation. He came to redeem you. You are the treasure. He died for your sins and he rose again and he's at the right hand of the Father and he's going to come back. And your need is to be forgiven and surrender your life to him to come in faith. And whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Will you call on him right now? Today is the day of salvation. You can pray, Jesus, I come to you and I ask that you forgive me of my sins. I believe you died for me and you rose again and sit upon the throne of my life as my personal Lord and Savior. Thank you for forgiving me and loving me. And I want to know you and walk with you because I know that you're my future and hope. Thank you for saving me in this new beginning, in Jesus' name. Maybe you're here, listen, we're not quite done, but, but don't go to sleep. Maybe you're here and maybe... You've been sluggish in your walk, lazy. You've pulled away from the Lord. The things of the world have come into your life and into your heart. It's going to leave you empty and deceived and depressed. And it's a trick of the enemy. And the Lord is calling you to come back. If there's sin in your life and you know it and the Lord's been dealing with you, he's calling you to repent and turn to him because he loves you. And he doesn't want you to get hurt and deceived. Call upon him right now if that's you. Because the invitation is always to come. He wants to forgive. He wants to restore. He wants to renew. Just tell him. Be honest. He knows it. You can pray, Lord, I'm so sorry I've been away from you. I've been cold in my heart towards you. I've allowed things of the world to, to take priority. I, I, I've been involved perhaps in, in, in this sin or this carnality. I've had these attitudes, whatever it may be. You just go to him. Let's take a minute. Just do that. Father, I thank you that we can come in the honesty of our hearts because you love us. I thank you for tonight. Stir our hearts, Lord, towards you to fight the good fight. So, Lord, take everyone home safely now. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Amen. Would you please stand?